Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio Live. If you're listening back as a podcast, thanks and enjoy. Let's get on with the show. Live from London, this is The Late Show with Emily Follow Run Show on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Teachers Talk Radio Show with me, Emily Follow Run And today I'll be joined by John Hutchinson. And we will be discussing all things teaching and learning. So I'm really, really excited. Please make sure that you share the show and interact with us via the chat. Or better still, please do call in. Live from London, this is The Late Show with Emily Follow Run Show on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash LSW slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Good evening, everyone. It's so lovely to be back on Teachers Talk Radio. Today, as I said earlier on, I will be joined by John Hutchinson, and he is the Director of Training and Development at the Reach Foundation and Visiting Fellow at Ambition Institute. I've been following John Hutchinson for quite some time now on Twitter, and his blog, as well as the things that he shares, is very insightful. And there's some things that I've also um, put into my practice as well. Um, he also has spoken at uh, research ed events as as well. So please do give a round of applause for John. Hi, John. How are you? Hello. That was very kind. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> uh, I'm very well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's just, you know, start of a new um, week, Monday, as as they say, but um, at least it's a four-day week, um, week today. I mean, this week, I should say, because we've got bank holiday on Friday. <laughs> oh, wow, bank holiday on Friday. I missed it. Amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's the Queen's um, Jubilee, so bank holiday for some of us, I suppose. <laughs> I did, um, that completely passed me by. Oh, I'm, I'm working on Friday. Oh, oh wow, wow. Oh, so yeah, that's what's getting me through this Monday feeling, just knowing that it's a four-day um, week, really and truly. So um, I have introduced you, but if you would like to, you know, introduce your journey, how you got into teaching and how you got this, you know, far into your career, because you are the Director of Training and Development, which is a huge achievement. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so my story, I um, I went, I started teaching in 2013, so uh, I took a couple of years out in between school and uni, actually. Um, I, I was a youth worker for a couple of years. Uh, I worked for a charity called Little Hearts Matter, which people should check out. Oh, sorry, John, I'm just struggling to hear you a bit. Um, I think I can hear some background noise. Oh, can you hear me now? Um, oh, yeah, I can hear you better now. Thank you. Great, I'm going to hide somewhere quiet in my, uh, in my office. Um, I took a couple of years out between uh, school and uni um, and worked as a youth worker. I worked for a charity called Little Hearts Matter, which people should check out. They do amazing work. They work with families where a single ventricle heart uh, diagnosis has been made, which means when a child is born with only half of their heart working. Um, and thanks to amazing advances in, in surgery, those children can um, receive an some operations and um, and go on to uh, go on to, to live um, uh, um, relatively healthy and uh, and happy lives. And so I worked with um, I worked with the kids who had who had had these diagnoses and their siblings, and I loved that. Um, and I thought that maybe I'd do that forever. Um, but the the pull of university was still calling at me. So I went to university, studied philosophy. Um, I guess to try and keep my options open because I had no, I was so indecisive. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, um, and, um, and even up until last year of uni, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But yeah. I, uh, so I was just like scrolling through, you know, like the graduate recruiters, like the top 100 graduate recruiters thing. Um, I was just sort of scrolling <laughs> through that in my student house. Um, and uh, Teach First popped up, which I'd never heard of before. Uh, and my mum is a primary school teacher. And I guess because of that, I I'd obviously enjoyed working with, with, with children. Um, I, but maybe because my mum was a teacher, there's that kind of thing of I should do something different. Um, 
but but when I started reading through the sort of the, the mission of, of, of Teach First and, and and remembering how much I've enjoyed working with children, I thought that this is this is something that I should this is something I should give a shot. Um, uh, and so trained with them in North London for a couple of years, teaching at a school in Enfield. Uh, and during that time, I heard a guy called Ed Banker speak at a conference, and he'd set up a new school relatively recently called Reach Academy Felton with uh, a colleague, uh, Bex Kramer. And they were both Teach First alumni, and they um, they wanted to sort of like build a build a whole school on 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 the with with missionary zeal to to address educational disadvantage. Um, and so I stayed in touch and, and moved to, to Reach and joined as a teacher um, uh, at Reach in 2015. So I'm a primary school teacher. But one of the things that attracted me about Reach is that it's an all three school. So we have children from age two to, to 18. And I, um, so I, I joined as, a, as um, leading one of the primary year groups there. And then um, uh, lots of opportunities for, for sort of like growth and development there. I um, led a curriculum project with with the DFE, um, uh, sort of embedding a, a knowledge-rich curriculum across primary. So we spent lots oh, of time wow. writing um, as comprehensive sort of sequence materials as possible. Um, yeah. And um, so so that, that resulted in sort of booklets for each of the history and geography units that primary school teachers teach uh, as part of the national curriculum. And um, yeah, so that was that was a that was a really cool project. I was I was really lucky to have a, a year to sort of just focus on that. Um, I was also teaching some A level at that time uh, in our school, um, which which meant I, I I could keep my keep my toe in in terms of teaching, um, and it was helpful in terms of getting me to see the whole journey as well that a child goes through in terms of school. Mm-hmm. Um, then what next? Then the um, uh, then uh, I, I moved on to become assistant head at, at, at Reach. I wanted to spend more time in school after the curriculum and, and sort of see it um, see it through on the ground. Um, and then the pandemic hit, and along with um, uh, about twelve other teachers at Reach and um, a, a couple of dozen teachers elsewhere, we we started Oak National Academy um, at the start of the pandemic um, and. Uh, I looked after the humanities curriculum for that. Um, and um, then just recently, once, <laughs> once so uh, in, in Easter, once I sort of felt, I thought that the pandemic, most of the disruption of the pandemic was over and had a couple of years of, of that, I, I moved into this new role. So I'm now working for our trust, um, thinking about, development and training of, of teachers more, more broadly. So we work with a number of schools and trusts and we're trying to um, codify our sort of like our model and our approaches and some of the things that we do that seem to be successful and uh, help to share that practice with, with other schools. Um, and so that's what I'm currently working on. That's amazing, John. Like, do you ever sleep? You've achieved so much. Um, do you have time for yourself? Do you sleep? Because where do you have a break? I am, I'm quite lucky in that I, it, it's sort of that my job is my hobby. I do, I just genuinely yeah, I really, that. really enjoy, um, I really, really enjoy so work. So, so I'm out of the classroom now. I, I, I'm no longer on the ground in school. And that's tough because it's so energizing working with yeah. children, especially, especially primary school children. I don't know about you, but it's kind of, um, especially if you've done a desk job in, in, in the past, it's, um, it, it, it's really a different thing. It's difficult to describe to people that haven't done it how a day can fly by in a second. Yeah, definitely agree. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, that's that. And but but you know, there's loads of cool things happening in education at the moment. So I, I just feel lucky to be able to work with interesting people to um, to to try and um, help help teachers keep getting better and um, and help the uh, pupils to achieve as much as possible. Oh, thanks, John. That sounds like an extensive career that you had. And I really do identify with the fact that, um, you know, being in the classroom energises as well as, you know, because it's my passion as well. Um, So I really do identify with that. And I can see that kind of fire of that passion due to the extents um, and the experience that you have um, in your career. Um, So... Yeah, so you've told me about your journey, um, and today's show is more about you know your the five um, 
bet your five bets in terms of improving teaching and learning and I believe that you spoke about this in I think was it research ed Surrey. that's right yeah 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 so why 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 the five bets if just to give us a bit of a taste and backdrop it's a good question. So, um, so I guess one other thing I did mention is, is that uh, I'm very lucky. One day a week, um, I'm seconded out to Ambition Institute, and I uh, tutor on their masters in expert teaching, which yeah. is a master's degree for teachers who um, want to improve their evidence-based practice. So they spend two years thinking about cognitive science and assessment theory and curriculum and, and motivation and um, uh, they take some of those principles from research and, they, and they, they, they create a plan to sort of implement that in their classroom and then wow. we, we sort of work together to evaluate that um, and they do that over two years and um, that is really cool because I get to speak to loads of teachers who are doing really really interesting things and geek out about sort of research together um, but what are the uh, that's uh, so um that's where this language of bets comes from. We, we use it, uh, ambition, um, quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's based on this idea that, well, a couple of ideas. First of all, um, Professor Rob Coe, who used to be um, a professor of education at uh, University of Durham, the Centre of Education and Monitoring, who's now working for um, evidence-based education. He, um, ha- he set out a, a manifesto for evidence-based education over 20 years ago now. And within within that, he said a couple of caveats, and he said that uh, um, evidence in education is actually far more, it's far more equivocal, it's far more complex, it's far more incomplete than than we often like to, we often like to admit, those of us like me who um, love to sort of fly the flag for evidence-based education. And and there are lots of reasons for that, and one of them is that um, schools are so... uh, contextual um but there are also some common factors so that the human mind has a lot more in in terms of the way that the human mind learns the way that it sort of stores retrieves processes information there's much more in common than 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 uh, is different between minds and so we also have these sort of commonalities that we know that um we have principles that will apply to most of if not all of the children in our class and we also know there are there are sort of approaches that are more likely or less likely to be effective in terms of teaching so uh, for example um, novices in any domain um, tend to uh, develop expertise and skill um, through direct instruction and regular feedback Um, that's true whether you're learning the guitar or learning to drive or learning to solve quadratic equations if you're new to it, um, leaving yeah. you to sort of like discover it for yourself is is, is not a very efficient um, way forward. Now, that's yeah. not the same as saying that you'll never learn it. I mean, if if you if if I if I gave you a car and said you just need to work out how to drive this car, um, you probably would work out how to do it eventually. Uh, yeah. It'd just take you ages. You'd probably crash yeah. quite a long <laughs> way. Um, and uh, so that's where the language of bets comes from in terms of can we say with absolute certainty that, um, that, that uh, direct instruction or explicit instruction early on is, is the, the, the only way that any child will, will learn? Well, probably not, but it's a really good yeah. bet. It's, it's, it's really likely to work for most children. And uh, given that our time in school with children is uh, relatively limited. Um, I think that there's kind of a moral imperative to take the best bets. So there's a moral imperative, not just to do the things that we enjoy doing, uh, not to do the things necessary that, that the children have most fun doing, but instead yeah. to do the things that, uh, that, 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 have, that are most likely to result in um, the most learning. Um, and so that's why um, we, we frame it around this idea of bets and, School leaders and teachers are tremendously busy. They're just the busiest people in the world. They have yeah, so much. To that again. <laughs> they yeah. have so much to think about, and so um, given that they have so much to think about, we 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 want to gift them with the uh, approaches that are going to be most uh, most efficient. And that's not the same as saying effective. So something's effective if it works. The problem is in education pretty much everything works. Um, there's very few things that you can do with kids 
that will have a negative impact on their on their progress. Kids just make progress anyway um, because yeah. they, they're growing and developing. Um, but that's not the same to say that there are that everything is efficient. So, like for an example, um, uh, triple marking. Let's take triple marking as an example. I did this. Did you do this when you used to? Oh. Yeah, double is it double marking? So when you give feedback and then you have to mark it again once they've acted on that feedback. Exactly. Did yeah. you do that? Yeah, yeah. Man. I think it's yeah. I'm not a fan of that. It yeah, a, it was a killer. I was. I remember doing. That. I remember getting thirty books at the end of a school day for literacy. Thirty books for maths, and I'd go through and I'd write a comment or a couple of comments for each of them. And then the children the next day, they would spend some time writing sort of like back or, or sort of like doing, you know, acting or whatever it is that I'd said. And then I'd take it back in and check that that was right. And if there are 30 books and you're spending, you know, even if you're spending five minutes on each of the 30 books, that's almost three hours of, yeah. of solid work each day. Now, there are two questions there. One is, is it effective? Does it help the children to, to, to move their learning on? And I think the answer to that is actually yes. Uh, I do think it's effective. I do think that the children um, benefit from it. I do think that, they, that, that, um, uh, that they're likely to move their learning on. But there's another question is, but is it efficient? And I think it's horribly inefficient. It's, 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 it's effective, but it's horribly inefficient. So it's a bad bet. It's a bad bet uh, because um, it's going to uh, take your teachers far too much time. So we want to bet on stuff that's both effective and efficient. And uh, as you say, in this talk, I, uh, we spent lots of time talking about this at Reach and reviewing sort of various bits and pieces of research um, to try and think about how we can make really good bets. We spend as much time at Reach talking about what we're not going to do or what we're not going to ask teachers to do is what we uh, tell them that, that we are going to do. So we'll explicitly say, for example, that we don't expect teachers to mark books outside of lessons. Uh, they can if they want to, but that's not an expectation because we don't think it's a very uh -huh. good bet. Um, yeah. And in doing so, it frees up time to do the things that we think um, have a bigger impact for less less sort of uh, less less input and bigger impact. Mm, oh, I love that. So in, in essence, your bet um, are the things that work married up with efficiency am i in a, in, in, in summary exactly yeah it. and um so just out of i mean i'm gonna touch on you know the bets that you did um speak about in research ed um but before that i just wanted to know um so you just you said for example with your teachers that you get them to you don't get them to mark outside of lesson time so do they not mark assessment this sounds like a dream so what's your marking policy like <laughs> So we don't have a marking policy. We have a feedback policy. Um, oh. So, uh, yeah. so because marking isn't the thing, right? Marking is just a proxy. So the, the, the thing that we're interested in, the thing that makes a difference to kids learning is feedback. So definitely everybody benefits from feedback. Um, the teacher benefits because they get good, useful information about what misconceptions the children hold, how many children are able to proficiently do what they're asking them to do. And the children yeah. benefit because they... Uh, um, uh, able to um, gain a sense of um, whether they're on the right track or um, or whether they uh, aren't. So um, so we have a so th the question is what's the best way to do feedback? And our answer is not by marking books at the at the end of the day. The children aren't there. Um, but also, like especially in primary, if a kid didn't understand um, using, I don't know, like um, let's say punctuating direct speech. That's that's something that primary school kids get wrong quite a lot, punctuating direct speech, including all the bits and pieces of grammar, the inverted commas, and the co comma inside the final inverted comma, and the reporting clause, and the capital letter at the start. Kids get that wrong all the time, right? Now, if they didn't understand it in the lesson, when you modelled it really clearly and gave them a chance to practice, they didn't understand it with you explaining it and, and sort of modelling on the board, what are the chances they're going to understand that through a written comment from you? Wow. It's even, wow. It's even less, yeah. right? So yeah. it's, it's a, it's a terrible idea to mark that book and expect to close that gap. Much better to act in the moment. So much better to um, notice in the moment that a child or 10 children are getting something wrong, exactly which bit they're getting wrong. So, for example, with punctuating direct speech, they, like the normal thing is forgetting that comma inside the final, uh, after you finish the bit of direct speech and before you put the final inverted comma, the, fine, the, the final comma, or maybe a question mark or an exclamation mark, if that's, if that's necessary. But that final bit of punctuation, that's what they forget. Now, 
when you're an experienced teacher, then you read like you can preempt that. You know that's the bit that they always that, that children always tend to forget. Um, yeah. But 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 you need to have a good sense in the lesson of how many children and which children are making that error, and then you don't want to leave it until tomorrow to act upon it. Um, so you don't want to mark the books at the end of the day and then they come back tomorrow. You want to do it there in the moment. That's when you're most likely to want that correction immediately, that correction effect immediately for the, for the kids. So in, what we do ask teachers to do. Um, is we expect them, whenever children are doing independent practice, so when, for example, they're writing their dialogue with direct speech, then we expect them to circulate the class. We expect them to circulate the class quite systematically. So wow. they'll, have a clip, they'll have a clipboard with all the children's names on, um, and they'll, they'll move around the class looking at every single child's piece of work, and they'll just jot on that clipboard which ch children are making errors and which children are successfully doing it. And it takes only about three or four minutes to go around a class like that. Maybe not even that, because you're not you're not actually talking to any children. That's something that's quite difficult to stay disciplined doing. Because yeah. usually what, what I would do is I'd set them off on the independent task, go to the first kid, and then if they're struggling, I just sit with that kid for the next 10 minutes. But there could be another 5, 10, 15, 30 kids that will have the same mistake. And I don't know that because I've sat down with that kid. So instead, we tell them that the first thing is just to gather that data. That That's feedback for you in terms of which wow. children have got misconceptions. Then they'll know. Maybe it's just two kids, in which case you just grab those two kids and, and you can um, have a quick huddle with them and you can model it to them again or maybe give them a scaffold that's going to be helpful for them. Um, and the rest of the kids can continue with their practice because, because they're okay. And then in the moment, those children who are finding it hard get the thing that they need to move to move on. But it could also be, as I said, that 25 kids are getting it wrong, in which case you know that in that moment, there's no point in proceeding with the lesson. You need to stop everybody, get everybody back and say, look, um, I've noticed that I, I obviously haven't explained this very well because um, I've noticed that, that lots of you uh, are struggling with, with this and making some mistakes. This, this is a mistake that lots of you are making. Keep getting with this this cover at, at the end here so let's just practice that with a few more together um, and then you can then you can all carry on with your practice and make sure you remember that one that means that um you're just doing it in the lesson it means that you don't have to for teachers it's great because it means that they don't have to then at the end of the lesson mark 30 books because they've dealt with the misconception in the lesson yeah. for children it's great because it means that they're having they're immediately getting corrected and, and going on the on the right path and, and remembering the, the right thing to do um, so, so that's what we'll we'll, we'll replace uh, we replace sort of uh, out of class marking with we call it we call it rigorous monitoring. Um, so, so teachers will rigorously monitor in lessons. Oh, that's really good. And I guess that these um, feedback sheets that um, teachers are filling in as they're circulating will inform their future lessons as well. Exactly. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. I really like that. Okay, so before we proceed in with the rest of the questions and really dive into um, and zone into the various bets that you have identified, we're just going to have a quick ad break. Um, so, yeah. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more, and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Hello, 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 and welcome back. So I've been speaking to John about his, um, the reasons behind uh, the best, the five bets for improving teaching and learning. So now we're really going to dive into the various bets that he has identified. And one of um, the bets he has identified is um, quizzing. So, um, John, why is quizzing effective and how have you embedded it into your lessons as a leader? I know you don't currently teach, but how have you, you know, embedded that 
as well into your school? Yeah, so um, so quizzing, uh, one of the most robust, let me start here. I don't know, were you ever told this um, when you were training to teach? I was told this when I was training to teach. Um, you don't fatten a pig by weighing it. Did you ever get? Did you no, ever I've get not that? heard that one before. <laughs> so I remember when I was training my, my lecturer saying, you don't fatten a pig by, by weighing it. And the idea was that um, tests in school uh, are kind of like bad. Um, it's bad to test children. It's bad to give children sort of tests because um, testing them doesn't make them any smarter, right? Teaching them makes them smarter. Testing them doesn't make any, them any smarter. All you do is weighing them and just weighing them over and over again won't make many, any, any fatter, won't make them any smarter. Um, and so, yeah, the conclusion of this is, you know, don't, don't test the kids. It stresses them out and it doesn't make them any smarter just teaching instead. Um, and I, so I, I listened to this and I thought, great, yeah, I won't, I won't test the, the children so much. That sounds sensible. Yeah. But I've since discovered it's, it's terrible advice. <laughs> it's yeah. terrible advice from, from a science learning perspective. Because actually, um, within psychological literature, one of the most robust bindings is uh, a phenomena called the uh, testing effect. So the testing effect is basically the idea that the more regularly you're tested on something, uh, the the more likely you're a the more likely you'll remember it in the future. Yeah. Um, so this can happen naturally in terms of most people know their phone number and they're not formally tested on it, but because people ask them it regularly, uh, they they come to learn it. Um, similarly, you know you you know your address, you remember your address. Um, mm. Why you're not formally tested on it, but what's what's happened is you've repeatedly been asked that and you've had to retrieve yeah. it to bring it back from memory. Now, now this is just an effect that's true of everything. So memories have um, information stored in, in memory. Have Robert, Robert and Elizabeth York. Um, there's sort of two. There's two uh, qualities to, to information in, in, in memory. There's its retrieval strength and its storage strength. The retrieval strength is how quickly you can bring it back to mind. Yeah. Um, so, so your postcode is a good example of that. If somebody asks you your postcode. Your retrieval strength is extremely high. You can you can bring it back to mind immediately. Yeah. Um, but there's also a storage strength, and storage strength is sort of how robustly something is is sort of stored in long-term memory. So the amount of times it's being retrieved um, speaks to this, but also the different sort of conditions and and, and context that's been retrieved in, um, and, and the, the, which which leads to other connections that it has with other, other sort of things in your in your memory. That will increase its storage strength. That means that it's um, it, it's it's less likely to be forgotten in the long term. But you can have things with high high storage strength but low retrieval strength um, so examples of this could be your um i don't know like your your route to school when you were growing up your yeah. route to your primary school so you had to retrieve that very often at one point but you probably haven't retrieved it for for, for well years yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that means if somebody said to you okay plot out your your route to school your retrieval strength probably wouldn't be so high you'd be you'd be Finding it a bit tricky, but but once it came back to you, it can be relearned uh, quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. Is that so, French for me? Yeah, because I was so good at French. Did it a year earlier, got an A, and now I could read it, but my pronunciation isn't that great because I haven't been practicing it. So, I thought right. So that's a good. That's a good example because there's actually. Um, so there's some, some good evidence to suggest that if you learnt a language and then gave up uh, and, you know, years have passed and you feel like you've forgotten it all, you'll actually, if you if you try and pick that up again, you'll relearn it much, much quicker than somebody oh, wow. starting from, from scratch. And the, and the idea there is that actually there's quite nothing in long-term memory is ever forgotten completely. Um, it, the, the retrieval strength just goes, goes really low. So how do we tackle this as teachers? Because this is a big problem. We want our kids to, to have high storage strength and high retrieval strength, right, of, of everything yeah. we're teaching them. Well, one of the answers to that is is through regular testing. Now, testing is a bit of a uh, a, a nasty word. It's got some yeah. horrible connotations with it. Um, so we just call it quizzing instead. Um, and it is more like quizzing because testing, you know, there'll be, there might be high stakes associated with it. Um, whereas with, with quizzing, it's very low stakes. We don't even collect in 
we don't collect in scores, for example. Yes, what they... we do do is we, we think really carefully about the stuff that we want kids to, to remember and be able to retrieve. Um, we, we quiz them on it all of the time. And so we do that at, at the start of each lesson. So the start of each lesson, we'll have four or five retrieval quiz questions. Um, yeah. and, then, and then also just in lessons, we'll, um, uh, we'll ensure there's plenty of opportunities for teachers to, to quiz pupils. Now, that means that they're not looking back at, at notes. They're not discussing with, with partners. They're trying to effortfully bring it back from, from their memory, retrieve it. And that effortful retrieval is important. It doesn't matter if they get it wrong or if they, if they can't remember. What matters is the effort of, of attempting to retrieve it or, or, or retrieving it. And the more regularly you, you retrieve something, um, the, the easier it will be to retrieve it in the future. So that means that if, for example, we're teaching our children about the causes of the First World War, and we want them to remember that there were, there were, there were sort of four causes, militarism, alliances, imperialism, and nationalism. Uh, now, I can, I've got high retrieval strength with those. I can just chop them off like I just did. Um, and that means that if I was answering an exam question, for example, which asked about the causes of the First World War, then I would be able to immediately get started with writing. I'd be able to organize my ideas quite well and be able to yeah. respond to questions um, about, you know, uh, increase, uh, in increased armed forces with uh, linking it to this idea of militarism that was on the rise um, across Western Europe more generally. Yeah. So if we want this, if we've identified that as something that's really important, and I know that me as, as, as a relative expert has that sort of uh, high retrieval strength, that I want my kids to have that as well. Uh, and the only way that I'm going to get it is through, um, uh, is through interrupting their forgetting of it, purposefully interrupting well, their forgetting yeah. So we yeah. purposefully interrupt the forgetting by giving them regular quiz questions. Uh, and thinking carefully about what those questions will be, what particular um, items of knowledge we're going to be targeting with those questions. Uh, and so that's the quizzing that takes place in, in our school. Thank you. Because um, last year I asked my sixth formers, you know, um, their opinions about teaching and learning in my department, because I'm head of history. And they said one of the things that they really actually liked was quizzes. Um, like yourself, I don't take the test scores in, but all I ask is, did you get higher than what you got before? Um, and if you see the back of their books, it's literally just full of quizzes. So they do enjoy that. Not all of them, but most of them do. Um, and I think, you know, making it very low stakes, as you said, by not taking in scores. But I just say to them, like, I just want to see progress. Did you get at least higher than what you got before? And I just tell them that literally the quizzes are like, um, practice lifting weights for your muscles it's just you know um it's like increasing your muscles for your brain and stopping that forgetting as well and they say that it's really it really helps them just especially because when writing essays they don't necessarily um when it comes to pinpointing the evidence it's not specific enough so that's one way in which quizzes has really um helped students to select that specific evidence to get them remembering statistics key people dates and events as well so yeah i definitely agree in terms of um of in terms of quizzing i think it's a great tool that's you know predicated and underpinned by creative science uh, so thanks john for that um so my next question is on your second um, bets and um, it's on instructional coaching. I know there's lots of talk and lots of um, work around instructional coaching. So if you could please um, tell our listeners what is instructional coaching and how have you embedded it in terms of, you know, your context and what impact you've seen. So it's a mouthful of questions, but we'll start off with what is instructional coaching Sure. So, uh, instructional coaching is an approach to teacher development um, in schools, and it's uh, it's predicated on the idea that regular, small, incremental pieces of feedback, which are which are usually referred to as action steps, will help teachers to get better over time. Um, yeah. And that. Uh, that's preferable to the, the, the kind of orthodoxy in teacher development, which is irregular, um, quite quite sort of like 
large judgments on their teaching practice. Um, so a lot of us would have had that kind of teacher development where you're in a school and then once a half term or once a term, a senior leader will come in and they'll watch your whole lesson and then they'll give you like a huge like brain dump of feedback. And they'll say, okay, these things were good, but you need to improve your differentiation. And the pace was like wrong in the middle. And some of the questions mm -hmm. weren't challenging enough for the children. And your, um, your uh, behavior management was a bit squiffy at the start. It was too many children talking. And they'll just give you like so many things. And it's, and it's just really overwhelming. And it's difficult to know what to act upon and how to act upon it. Um, so instructional coaching is different than that. What, what, what will happen is uh, in our school is, um, and, and you're right that it's become really popular recently, especially because of the early career framework, which is yeah. across schools where, where instructional coaching is the mechanism that's used for that. And um, I'm, really, I'm really pleased about that because um, I think that um, it's going to help lots and lots of new teachers to um, develop their practice um, in a much uh, better way than, than previously, you know, much more systematic. Um, so here's how it works. Uh, every teacher reach has a coach. Um, that's from our ECTs right down to our, uh, right up to our head teacher. Um, wow. So the, we believe that every teacher both can and should keep getting better. Um, and so every single teacher has a coach. Uh, they receive a drop in every week from their coach. So um, uh, your coach will drop in for about 10 minutes, maybe 15, um, about 10 minutes, and they'll just drop in and they'll see a little section of your teaching. They're not trying to make a big whole judgment. It's non-judgmental non that way. They're not trying to make a big whole judgment. Um, they're just sort of seeing where your practice is at that moment um, and then considering what will, in, what will improve it, what will make it even better. So you have that drop in. Uh, and then you have a coaching meeting, which lasts, for us, it lasts no more than half an hour. Um, we, we try and keep it as short and snappy as possible because we want to respect teachers' time. We think that when meetings go on for too long, then they just get a bit flabby mm -hmm. and people sort of like, people ramble and, and, um, and they're more likely to get cancelled because you know, if you're an hour meeting and there's something really pressing, you just cancel the whole meeting. But if something's just 20 minutes, you might still be able to squeeze it in. Um, and one of the key components of instructional coaching is that it's really regular to keep that momentum up. So you have this coaching meeting, 20 minutes, half an hour, and your coach will uh, tell you what they saw in your lesson. They'll, they'll, they'll talk about some, some stuff that was great, and then they'll, they'll zone in on one particular section. And instructional coaching is really focused. You don't try and talk about everything. Great coaches think as much about what they're not going to talk about as what they are going to talk about. I love so they, that. Your coach might just say, we're going to focus uh, in this meeting just on your questioning. Okay, I'd just like to focus on your questioning. And when I came into your lesson, um, you were uh, questioning some of the children. Can you tell me what you were trying to, why were you questioning the children? And I'll probe the teacher to try and get a sense of what the teacher was trying to achieve. So the teacher might respond to that with, well, I was about to set them off on an independent task and I wanted to check to see if they understood. So that's why I was questioning them then. Great. Okay. So why did you why did you ask the questions before the independent task? Because I needed to know whether or not the children were willing to move on. Okay. Which children? And then the teacher will think, oh, but I wanted to know all the children. Like I need to know because they were all going to do the independent task, so I need to know. If there were any, I need to know whether all the children understood. Okay, and and then tell me again what you did to try and tell me again what you did to try and get that that information. But I asked these three children. Okay, and were they? Did they understand it? Yeah, yeah, they all understood it. Great. So what did that tell you? Well, it, it told me that those three children understood it. Okay. What about the other twenty-seven children? I don't know about them. Okay. So that is what we call the gap. So it's the gap between what you wanted to achieve and what you actually achieved. And that's what coaches are hunting for. Coaches, great coaches, coaches are hunting for that gap. Now, like I said, it's non-judgmental. They're there to help you. My coach is there to help me. Um, and, and they're another pair of eyes and another mind to, to try and make sense of that. What you'll then do is give them an action step. So you'll say, we can close that gap together. We can, we can improve your practice, which will help your 
um, pupils in, in, in the future and help you to be a better teacher. Um, and then you'll talk about, there, there are a few ways of doing this. That teacher, if they're, if they're quite experienced, they might say, they might give the action step straight away. They, they might say, do you know what, what I should have done is I should have got the board to write down their responses on a new whiteboard because then I could have checked all of them and I could have seen, I could have picked out any kids that didn't understand it um, and then I would have been sure. Um, um, but it might be if they're a bit less experienced, they don't, they don't really know how to address it, in which case you, you can give them that. You can say, look, this would be a good way to, to close that gap. And then the last part, and this is really key, and this is what lots of schools, in my experience, don't do, is you practice. So you get the teacher to practice. So if they've said that they want to pose a question, get the kids to use many whiteboards, and then check them, then you'll get them to practice doing exactly that in the simulator. So they stand up and they pretend that they're in front of the classroom, and they tell, they pretend that they're teaching that class, but doing that new thing. And practicing is absolutely key to make, making it more likely to happen in the future. But yeah. lots of people shy away from it because it's quite awkward. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit embarrassing. And so um, people just, they, they'll skirt over and they'll say, okay, yeah, great. That's what I said, do it in your next lesson. But we, um, we demand practice. Even though it's awkward, we just, we just do it anyway. Um, and uh, that means that every, every teacher in our school gets... Know, 35, 36, 37 action steps every year. Um, and it means that all of those add up uh, to mean that every single week, all of our teachers are getting better. We think it's really motivating for our teachers. Everybody likes to feel like they're getting better at something. Nobody likes to be teaching for four years and you don't feel like you've really got any proper feedback on your teaching and yeah. um, you don't feel like you're getting any better and you're stagnating. And um, that, That's, yeah. that's going to make people likely to leave leave the school potentially leave the profession um, and so, so is that how you got buy-in in or in terms of this model of um instructional coaching just that you just kind of you know you spoke to that desire within each teacher to improve and develop yeah and we actually recruit for it so um uh when i um, had my interview for Reach. I was told that I was going to teach a lesson on. Um, it was the lesson was adding adjectives uh, to a sentence to improve the substance. It was a year two lesson, um, and so I went. I, I, I went along and I taught that lesson. It was for twenty minutes. I taught that lesson for the year two class for twenty minutes, and then um, usually when you're applying for a school, we then have your interview, right? And, and, and they, you know, they, they present that lesson, you have your interview. It's not what we do at Reach. Um, so. After you've talked for 20 minutes, the person that's observing you will give you an action step. They'll say, okay, that was great. Thanks very much for, for letting me watch that. I think it would be even better if you did this thing. Um, it's like a medication session. I think it would be even better when you talk about that. I think it would be better if you did this. Um, now you're going to go and teach it again with the other year two class. I want you to I want you to try and put that into, in, into play. Um, and the, the reason that we do that is because then during the interview, we can say, how is that for you? Um, because if you come and teach a reach, you're going to get that every week. Um, everybody gets it because we think that it's your entitlement as a teacher to be developed. Um, and we think it's our kids' entitlement to have teachers who are constantly getting better. Uh, so if that's not for you, and it's not for everybody, then this is not the place for you. Um, yeah. If you enjoyed that, then that's for you. It's also that when we're recruiting, we're far more interested in teachers' capacity to improve than when yeah, they are in their practice. Yeah, I totally agree because that's how you create that culture of development, which is key, I believe, for any successful um, school. And then my last question before we go on to a news break is what impact have you seen in terms of implementing instructional coaching? So... Um, We've always done instructional coaching. So since the school opened in 2012, it's one of the bets that um, uh, Rebecca and Ed made right from the start. Um, the, the quality of teaching was the, the most critical factor. Um, and so we can improve that by uh, through instructional coaching. However, we've definitely had our ups and downs with it. It's been more and less successful. We've tried a few different things. Like any school, you know, you need to tweak, you need to refine, you need, refine, you need to adapt. Um, there are going to be differences in some years. You're going to have lots and lots of um, uh, teachers who are new to the school or newly qualified teachers. Over the years, it's more experienced teachers. Uh, however, the what the impact that it's had is it means that there is a relentless focus on great teaching and learning. 
everybody's mm-hmm. always thinking about how to how to make their teaching better. It oh, also just yeah. completely eliminates ego. There's no yeah. such thing as like a superhero teacher at Reach. Wow. There's no like this is the great teacher. Everybody is just trying to get a bit better than they were last week. And yeah. we all need help to do that. And so it builds like a, a really strong like culture of of development and improvement. But you know, we expect that of our children and so we also expect it from our teachers as well. Um, mm. and uh, yeah, so it makes it an exciting place to work, um, I, I think and it makes it a place um, with, with that great culture. And you, there's no chance of going stale because being in that stale um, state is just the worst feeling um, ever. Thank you, John. Um, we're just going to go on to um, an ad break and news break, and then we will continue on with our conversation in terms of the next um, free bet. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programs to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. For the second year in a row, Christmas lunches and concerts in schools have been cancelled in Wales and Scotland. As the UK's Covid infection rates continue to rise, it's feared that schools in England and Northern Ireland will face a similar situation. Scottish councils are following local advice and advising schools to opt for virtual concerts instead. A spokesperson for Highland Council said, The Highland Council recognises the positive impact that concerts and other events have on the wider health and development of children. However, COVID-19 remains present in our schools and communities, and therefore Highland schools have been advised that large events beyond a class should not take place indoors or for a live audience. The chairman of Kent Association of Head Teachers, Alan Brooks, has highlighted a shortage of teaching assistants across the county. He said, It is becoming increasingly difficult to recruit teaching assistants and support our staff within schools. One of the things schools used to achieve was to offer flexibility in terms of holiday compared to other employers. However, a lot of other companies are offering flexible hours during the pandemic, like supermarkets, which means there is more competition. Money is an obstacle in terms of taking jobs. Local authorities and schools are not blind to that. It's hard to see how we can do a huge amount in terms of salary increase without more help. Becoming a teaching assistant is a worthwhile job. Working with young people, you can see what you are doing is helpful and relevant, most often helping the most vulnerable students grow, which is tremendously satisfying. This has been your daily education news briefing. Welcome back. So you have just caught up on the latest educational news. And prior to this, I've been chatting away with John Hutchinson in regards to the five bets um, in terms of um, improving teaching learning. So we've discussed um, quizzing as a means to strengthen 
um, students' ability to retrieve knowledge from their long-term memory back into their working memory. We also spoke about instructional coaching as well and how that has enabled teachers to develop. So we are going to move on to talk about other um, bet, um, his other five bets, such as um, ratio and sequencing of a curriculum. And then hopefully if we've got time, um, we might touch on cognitive, the cognitive low theory and what that means in, t- in terms of um, improving teaching and learning. So um, hi, John, welcome back. Hello. Um, so if you could talk on um, ratio um, in terms of one of your five um, bets, please. Yeah, so we um, so ra- ratio um, comes from uh, Doug Lamov and his, his Teach Like a Champion uh, manual. And we think it's just a really, really helpful way to frame what teachers are doing in the classroom. So there's two, if you imagine a graph with an x-axis and a, and a y-axis, there's, there's, a, there's two aspects of ratio. The first is... Uh, participation ratio so that's going along the y-axis um, and the second is thinking ratio and that's going along the x-axis and the more of our pupils that we can have participated in any, any particular part of the lesson the higher the participation ratio so if we've got all 30 children in our class we've got 30 children in our class if we've got all 30 children um uh, in the class then uh, participating then we've got high participation ratio if um, we have uh, so that's one part of it along the x-axis we then got the thinking ratio the thinking ratio is how hard they need to think so uh, so this is how challenging or effortful full the, the the particular task that we're asking them to do is and if that's about as challenging as it can get then you've got high uh, thinking ratio now the sweet spot the dream is to have both a high participation ratio um, all the children doing it and a high thinking ratio so um, them thinking about hard challenging stuff that's going to help them to improve their sort of like learning and progress in their, in their knowledge and understanding the difficulty with ratio is that it seems like the more you move one up the the lower the other one goes so for example we could easily get all 30 children participating in a lesson by giving them just something quite fun to do. So maybe we just tell them to, I don't know, sort of like draw cartoon pictures of, to stick with our uh, um, uh, World War One theme. Maybe we just tell them to draw cartoon characters of David Lloyd George and Clemenceau and Woodrow Wilson. So we've got a high participation ratio there, they're all doing it. But we've got that participation ratio by lowering the thinking ratio. And this is sometimes sort of referred to as busy work. Um, so so Robco has this as one of his uh, poor proxies for learning. Just because children are busy doesn't mean that they're learning anything. Um, mm. So on the other hand, we could increase the thinking ratio, right? So we could give them something really hard to do. And we could, for example, say to them, I want you to isolate all the specific points that Clarenceau and Wilson were in disagreement about when, um, when at, at the Treaty of Versailles. Um, now, kids have to think really hard about that, and it's going to help them to organize their knowledge in a way that's going to improve their understanding. But the problem is it's so hard that there's a good chance that lots of the children won't engage in that um, uh, because it's too hard to think about it. Um, and so the, the dream where we want to try and get to is um, organizing tasks, activities, sections of the lesson where we can both demand all children participating, but also getting to think hard. Now, this is really, really tough to do. And that's why we've, we've got it as one of our good bets in terms of we, we think that uh, this will make a huge difference to pupil learning. If you can have the maximum number of children thinking as hard as they possibly can about challenging stuff. But um, yeah. it, it's definitely something that's, that's difficult as a teacher. Mm, I definitely agree. It's something that um, I definitely need to work on in terms of 
you know, utilizing these thinking card strategies, but also ensuring that everyone in the classroom is participating, even as a quite experienced teacher, it's something that I is one of my personal targets. So thank you for sharing. Um, so my next question is in regards to sequencing the curriculum. Would you be able to briefly touch on how that aids, you know, improving teaching, and especially now that, you know, everybody's seeking to improve their curriculum due to the new Ofsted framework? Yeah, so it's one of the areas where I'm actually in agreement of Ofsted. Um, don't throw things at me. Uh, I think that they're actually, I think they're actually right here. Um, yeah, so, uh, um, so as I mentioned, uh, in in sort of 2017, we embarked on this curriculum project because because we kind of come to this conclusion um, maybe a year or two before before Ofsted, along with the, 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 there were, there were, there were, I think there were quite a few schools who, who had realized that the, the curriculum that they were offering kids probably wasn't um, a great entitlement in yeah. terms of, it, it, it wasn't particularly sort of rigorous in terms of what we were offering kids. Um, uh, and, uh, and it also wasn't sequenced particularly well in, in a way that was going to mean that they, that they built on what they'd learned before and they were going to be ready mm-hmm. for what they learned after. Instead, very often, and I think especially in primary schools, we were kind of filling lessons with stuff, um, and that that was often quite quite random, especially in lots of the foundation subjects like history and geography and and art. We we, we would start maybe with a topic, a topic maybe like the Romans, but maybe something even vaguer, um, like um, it, it might have just been something like rainforests or even something like chocolate. That, that we think uh-huh. would that, that, that might excite the children yeah and then, and then we just sort of like fill lessons with stuff around chocolates and so so there'll be tenuous links to to sort of subjects here we might you know heat some chocolate and watch it now we might eat a bit of chocolate and sort of write about it um we might look a little read a little bit about the sort of history of chocolate and maybe sort of like look on a map see where south america was but it was all a little bit random. Um, it wasn't really held together in any sort of like coherent way. And it wasn't built upon in, in any meaningful way in, in, in future years. We were just we were just kind of filling, like I say, filling lessons with stuff for kids to do. It was what yeah. I call an, a, like an activity-based curriculum. You, you, you start out by thinking yeah. about the activities that you want the kids to do. Yeah. Um, and so we moved away from that. We moved towards a, a knowledge-based curriculum. And I cringe a little bit at that because it's becoming sort of politicised and and uh, in a way it's probably unhelpful but really what I mean by it is that rather than by starting out with what we want the children to be doing the activities we want them to be doing we start out by thinking about what we want the children to know and so we when I say sequence in the curriculum we we begin by thinking at age 18 what do we want our kids to know in history in geography in art Um, and for them to know that at 18, what will they need to know at 16? And for them to know that at 16, what will they need to know at 14 and 11 and 5? And that means that um, every single year you know that you're um, on that journey, you're, you're supporting people on that journey to being um, uh, a master of their subject by the time they leave. Now, of course, not everybody will take history to 18 but we think nobody loses from being on that path even if you decide that you're not going to take it at, at GCSE and you drop it at age 14 or you take a GCSE and drop it then um, yeah. you have lost because you were on the path to mastering the subject so you are gaining tons of skills now it's difficult because um, that, that takes an awful lot of thought we've been at it for as I say about, about five years now we're certainly not done it takes it takes a lot of thought um, but we think that from a, a child's entitlement perspective, it's one of the most important things that, that a school can think about. Mm, thank you so much, um, because I feel like, you know, there's so much talk about the curriculum um, and improving the curriculum. And I think it was Zoe Enza that put um, a poll in on um, Twitter this weekend in regards to what is your why in terms of improving the curriculum. And a lot of people said um, Ofsted. Um, but I liked what you said about it. it is, you know, a moral kind of entitlement as well for all students to have 
um, a rich curriculum that's centered on knowledge that will speak to them in, when they're 16 and when they're 18 and so on. So I really like the fact that you kind of put in the center actually curriculum should be coherent and it should be rich for the student, for pupils. So thank you for that. And then my last question is about cognitive load theory. I'm sure lots of people know about cognitive load theory. I think it's one of the revolutions that have come about um, in terms of education. So uh, how have you embedded cognitive load in terms of your schools at school and um, what impact have you seen? So um, first of all, I did it wrong. <laughs> I got it. I definitely got it wrong to begin with. So to begin, I got interested in this partially mm -hmm. through. Um, I, I studied. I studied a master's myself. Um, uh, whilst whilst I was teaching in um, educational research, and got interested in this, um, and was then um, working with ambition and felt like this is really important. I still feel like it's really important. But I, I initially set out just by sort of like bamboozling staff and teachers with tons and tons of theory during CPD um, and that didn't really have the sort of impact that that we that we hoped that it would um, because there was a whole load of like so what um, and uh, <laughs> I think we can get this one and, and like part of it just like yeah well done you've read a book um, and it sort of just felt like I was just sort of showing off that, that I read this thing um, I, I did not do a good job at a making it sort of like concrete and practical in terms of how it translates into into the classroom um, yeah. or, or, or be sort of like giving teachers time to translate it themselves into what they're actually be teaching that week that month right here so we we then took a far more sort of like um uh interwoven approach where we took some of the key principles from the cognitive Science. So, for example, retrieval practice, that idea that um, regular quizzing um, helps to improve um, people's um, retrieval of memory. And um, we, we begin with that key, um, key sort of like binding. We might, we might read something. So we often share pre-reading before CPD at reach. So we share it a week or so beforehand and give people a chance to read a short paper, short primer, and then give them a chance to discuss that, um, discuss that with colleagues, make sense of it themselves. Um, and then also give them a chance to talk about how they're going to apply it in their classroom and test that with colleagues and challenge each other and, and collaborate on, on that. We also do think, though, that it's important to have a strong grounding in, in the science. We don't want it to be yeah. like a, a tips and tricks approach, and we don't want it to... I think that quite often in education, actually, teachers, we... Teachers develop quite a superficial understanding of, of, of some of these sort of key ideas, like growth mindset was another one, right? In that we didn't really give teachers a chance to properly understand the theory and, and, and what had sort of led to it. We just said, there's like mutations as a result of these, these research methods. Right, yeah. We just yeah. said to teachers, just say, yeah, you, know, you, you can't do it yet. Just, just say that. To them. And, and it didn't really, you know, died out because that, that obviously... You know, that it takes you so far just saying to children you can't do it yet um, or just sort of like imagine you can do it or keep trying you've got a growth mindset doesn't really actually help anybody so we also asked all of our staff over the over the course we gave them you know lots of gave them several months to do it um, but we asked them to complete a free online module from Seneca Learning um, called Cognitive Mode Theory for, for Teachers it's a really good module so it's all online so teachers can do it Know, five minutes at a time or they can sit down and do it for two or three hours and we'll go if they if they want to they can take, take it at their own pace and in a place that works for them and um it uh it, it, it introduced them to the key ideas and theories that underpin um, and, and set out the blade theory so we asked all of our teachers to do that which meant that we knew that all of our teachers had this ground had this sort of ground understanding but that's only part of it then what we do is we just refer to it all of the time in stuff at school. So whether we're giving feedback in a coaching session, uh, whether we're talking about planning for an upcoming unit, whether we're discussing uh, a particular pupil's attainment, we'll constantly be referencing this idea of cognitive load theory. When we're, when we're analysing, when we're, when, we're, when we're sort of like reviewing the slides that teachers put together, we'll be talking about 
dual coding mm -hmm. and uh, split attention effectors. And once you've got that common language, you can say like, oh, well, I'm a bit worried about the split attention effect here. Um, or oh, a bit, wow. a bit about the redundancy effect with this slide. The teacher knows immediately yeah. what you're talking about. So, so it's featured in your feedback. Exactly, yeah. Just yeah. Every, it's just common language in terms of every conversation that, that, that we have in, in, in school. Um, and that's a real superpower of the school. When you know that there is that shared language, it makes you, yeah. it means you can have much, much better conversations about teaching and learning. Yeah, that's so good because um, actually I'm doing the um, MPQ LTD. So I had my... Um, with Ambition Institute. So I had the first conference meeting in person on Friday and um, and that was featured actually in our course book about how to give effective feedback and relating it back to cognitive uh, science and that whole coaching. So yeah, that that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, okay. yeah, and I think that's it at, um, in terms of the questions I have, but um, for those that are listening, thank you. And those that are going to listen in the future, thank you. Please do carry on with the conversation and follow John if you haven't um, followed him already. So how can people get in touch with you, John? Uh, I am on Twitter. So people can follow me. It's at John, just J-O-N, at John underscore Hutchinson underscore. Uh, and that's probably the best place to find me. Uh, so yeah, um, you can you can go onto Twitter at John underscore Hutchinson underscore, but it's just J-O-N. Thank you, John. So please do follow John on um, Twitter. Please um, send us any feedback about the show or any questions. Um, you can forward it onto myself or onto John as he's like the beacon of knowledge when it comes to this um so please do um get in touch and I am I don't have a show next Monday but the Monday after I have a mighty show which I'm really looking forward to it might be a bit um controversial um but I've got really interesting guests um I don't know if I can reveal it now, but um, that will be great. On it's on the sixteenth, on the sixteenth, it's on the sixth of December. So please do join in. So thank you so much, John, for your time. It's been such a good CPD session for me personally, and I'm sure it will be for those that are listening now, as well as those that are going to listen back. So thank you so much, John. My absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Emily. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Have a lovely evening and have a lovely evening, everyone. Goodbye.